All right. So uh, as was mentioned in the introduction, thank you, Lucy. We have the privilege, my wife and I, of working with the core discipleship and evangelism training program, giving people a space to figure out why they believe what they believe, how to own their faith experience, how to figure out what God has made them for, and to mobilize them into the vineyard to do that work, uh, to do ministry. And not everyone who comes to CORE goes into full-time ministry, but they're now better rooted to be able to share their faith in the workplace, to be an active participant in the local church and so forth. So that's what we're about. Uh, if you'd like to know more information, uh, our website is coreevangelism.com. And it's not just for young adults, it's for all age groups, 18 and over. And uh, we also have CORE Online as an option where you can take our classes online if you can't be there in person. And we are offering our Three Angels Messages class for free. So even broke college students can afford it. Amen? Uh, and so it's free. You can take our Three Angels Messages class. And if you like that, then we're rolling out over the next year or two uh, more content that you can be able to buy in smaller portions. Many times these like other online training programs, you're doing like hundreds of hours worth of content. It gets discouraging and you quit. So we're giving it in like small bite-sized chunks. That's kind of where we're going. You know, it's mental health, evangelism, righteousness by faith, theology, Daniel and Revelation, the sanctuary, health evangelism, the whole gamut, right? So that's what we offer. And that's all on our website. When you go to the website, the first banner that pops up is actually that free offer for Core Online. And uh, if you want to support people, maybe you can't come, but you'd like to support students and being able to have this life-transforming experience as you heard in the video, then you also can donate on the site there. It's all tax deductible. We're a ministry of the conference. Okay, so uh, my job this morning is to convince you that you need counseling. Um, now, what do I mean by that? Uh, we'll unpack that as we go. There's an alternate title. I almost gave this message. I'll tell you later. Um, but I want to reflect upon, um, we, well, Sarah and I last night addressed the topic of bad religion and church hurt and finding healing from that and understanding that just because people who claim to know God did hurtful things does not mean that God signs off on that. In fact, he doesn't sign off on it. But the question still remains, why is it so attractive? Like, why is it that so many people get caught up in versions of Adventism and Christianity that are so gross and hurtful and damaging? You ever wondered that? Like, it's definitely not attractive on the other end of it, right? By receiving bad religion. But for some reason, it draws lots of people in to be uh, channels of bad religion. So how does that happen? Why do we believe this stuff, and why is it attractive to us? That's the point for this morning's message, the psychology behind why we fall into certain belief systems and what void those beliefs are filling. And uh, I've never preached this before. You're the first ones to hear it. Um, so how long it will be? Who knows? Uh, I have an idea, actually. I'm just kidding. But let's pray. God in heaven, I thank you for this privilege to reflect upon Bible truth, and I just pray that the straight testimony of the true witness would speak to our hearts, that you would open our eyes to our true condition, and that you would speak truth into the inward parts. Lord, I know that these people need something that I can't provide them, but I know that you can, and so I just ask that you would keep me from getting in the way, and that this would be clear, biblical, and helpful. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful. And then what do they call him? 
Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And when I looked up the original language for this, it means counselor, advisor, one who gives advice and direction with the implication that the advice given is wise and valuable. How many people have ever been the victim of receiving unsolicited advice? Anybody ever had to deal with that? Somebody giving, here's what you need to do. I didn't actually ask for that. I just said, my name is Larry. I don't know where this is coming from, right? Or whatever. So unsolicited advice is not really that helpful. This is something that's wise and valuable counsel and advice. Revelation chapter three picks up on this idea in verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write. Now, I'm not going to give you a treatise on church history and Revelation and how to follow the seals, trumpets, and all of that, and the vials, but the seventh church in Revelation is speaking about us right now. Ellen White, the founder of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, one of the founders, as early as 1852, diagnosed the Advent movement as being in a Laodicean condition. That's 11 years before we became officially the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and that was already in our system. So, this is applying to us, okay? To the angel of the church of Laodiceans write, these things, these things says the amen, and then what do they call him? The faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, he says, that you were neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, the counselor here in Revelation 3 is bearing witness to the true condition of the things in this church in Revelation 3. I see that you're working, but you aren't fully bought in on the things that matter, and you're hot and bothered about the things that aren't as important. This is part of the problem for the church, as Matthew Henry comments on this, one of the commentators. He says, if religion is worth anything, it's worth everything. Christ expects men should be in earnest. How many professors of gospel doctrine are neither hot nor cold, except as they are indifferent in needful matters and hot and fiery in disputes about things of lesser moment. Anyone convicted already? A severe punishment is threatened. They would give a false opinion of Christianity as if it were an unholy religion. So the result of bad religion is making people think that it's an unholy religion, while others would conclude it could afford no real satisfaction. Otherwise, its professors would not have been heartless in it. Notice his diagnosis, right? That if we kind of share and disperse this picture of bad religion, it's not really doing much for you either, right? Because you're miserable and you're getting on to me for lesser matters, so why would I want what you have? You understand the connection he's making here? And, or so ready to seek pleasure or happiness from the world. One cause of this indifference and inconsistency in religion is self-conceit and self-delusion, because thou sayest. What a difference, and he's quoting from Revelation 3, we'll come back to that in a second. What a difference between their thoughts of themselves and the thoughts that Christ had of them. Notice. This church in Revelation chapter 3 thinks they're in one condition, but Jesus knows they're in a very different condition, okay? Let us beg of God that we may not be left to flatter and deceive ourselves. Professors grow proud as they become carnal and formal. Their state was wretched in itself. They were poor, really poor, when they said and thought that they were rich. They could not see their state, nor their way, nor their danger, yet they thought they saw it. This is the, this is the thing that's so dangerous. 
You think you know yourself. And Jesus is saying, you really don't. You really don't know yourself. You need a counselor. You need an external objective source of truth that can help you see where you really are. But we're told this, happy are those who take his counsel, for all others must perish in their sins. Christ lets them know where they might have true riches and how they might have them. Sinners ought to take the rebukes of God's word and rod as tokens of his love to their souls. He's commenting on Revelation 3. We'll finish because he, he went further in the text than what we read. Because you say, I am rich, you think you're rich and become wealthy and have need of nothing, but you do not know that you are wretched. And what's the next word? Miserable. How many people have seen folks that claim to be religious, but they're just mean mugging? You ever seen it? Um, maybe you've heard the statement before, right? If your religion's doing you any good, inform your face, right? <laughs> and so you don't recognize that you're wretched, that you're miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And so what does he do? He counsels us. You need a counselor. We need counseling. So I counsel you to buy from me. So who's offering the solution? The very same one who's showing us our true condition is not shaming us, right? He's offering us a solution. You don't recognize that you're bleeding out, but I'm a physician and I can help you. Just listen to me. Does that make sense? So he continues. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. You're poor, but I want to solve that problem. White garments, you're naked, but I want to solve that problem so that you can be clothed and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve because you're blind, you can't see, so that you may see. So our perception of where we are is not the same as God's understanding of our true condition. We have a problem. We are not who we think we are. And many times when I hear people preaching the Laodicean message, it's like these tepid Adventists who are lax on lifestyle issues and other things, or they go to church in a different day than us. I think the Laodicean message goes a lot deeper than that. And I think there's a massive mental health component to it. At the very foundational basis of this message, it's you're not who you think you are. At every aspect of your being, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, and otherwise, you are not who you think you are. We need counseling. And so he, as the true witness and the counselor, gives us counsel on where we need to go to solve our problem. It's found in coming to him and receiving a faith that works by love, Galatians 5, 6. That's that gold tried in the fire. The righteousness of Christ right? That white raiment. And here's the difficult one, ISAV, spiritual discernment to recognize our true condition. His true witness and counsel shows us our true condition. But notice also that we can be miserable and not be honest with ourselves about this fact. Ironically, everyone around us knows, but we just don't know. And many times we're making them miserable because we're miserable, but we don't see it ourselves. And when people shy away from the religion that we're preaching, we say, well, they're just not converted. They just don't want to hear the truth. Maybe what you're saying isn't actually true. How could it be if you don't even know the truth about yourself? Are you understanding? Or maybe it's factually true, but it's not giving the spirit of the one who gave that truth, meaning Jesus himself. Does that make sense? Is it possible to say things that are biblically true, but to give a picture of God that's gross and disgusting? Yeah, we asked this question last night. What would be the picture that's painted by the undertone of your preaching of the Adventist message? 
is people's picture of God a smiley face or a frowny face based upon what you're saying and implying in your preaching and teaching. This matters, guys. It matters a lot. And so we'll unpack this more as we go, but you can be honest and not, or you can be miserable and not know that. The amazing thing to me is that even though our true condition makes him want to vomit, he doesn't give up on us. He offers us a solution in himself, and he keeps pursuing us, as we see in our next verses. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous. And this word literally means to have warmth of feeling for or against. And then he says to repent, which means to think differently afterwards. So we can buy of him by having warmth of feeling for this truth he's trying to share with us instead of the indifference that we've shown to date and to literally think different about ourselves afterwards. You've probably heard someone share this definition of humility that it's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less, right? God is needing us to do what Ellen White talks about in The Faith I Live By 111, one of my favorite quotes. She says, what is justification by faith? It's the work of God. The work of who? The work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. And when men and women see their nothingness, what happens? They're then prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So until you recognize your nothingness, you're not in a place to receive the solution. Does that make sense? We need counseling. We need someone to tell us our true condition so we in turn can receive the beautiful fruit of the solution. The righteousness of Christ imputed and imparted to me. Someone declaring me righteous and making me righteous. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 continues, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice, whose voice? The voice of the, the counselor and the true witness. And whoever opens the door, who responds to my gracious appeal for entrance and to that counsel, if we do that, he says, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. What I love is many times when people are giving unsolicited advice, it's unattractive and they don't really seem to take interest in us. They just want to manipulate our external behavior. But when the true counselor takes interest in us, it's because he wants to improve your quality of life and he wants to commune with you and have fellowship with you. Are you with me, guys? So we, can, we need counseling, but it's a good thing, right? So even though we've lost sight of our nothingness, the amazing thing to me is he still ends up pursuing us. He still wants to dine with us when we've not been very good friends to him or to those around us. And I believe our arrogance and our tendency to chase rabbit trails, our argumentative bent, and our insecurity has led us to fall into traps that Satan loves to set for God's people. And because of that, we aren't who we think we are or who God longs for us to be. And we're miserable and we can't even see it. And we need to talk about why we're so inclined to believe this stuff and to fall into it. What purpose is it serving me? Why do I keep going back? So what are some of these traps and mindsets that have set us back as a people? The Apostle Paul has some incredible counsel on this. I'd never seen it before. But Paul is a pastor. He's giving counsel to a new pastor, to Timothy, and then eventually to Titus as well. Young pastors getting counsel from a seasoned pastor on issues that happen in the church. Paul doesn't just address bad things that are happening. He even tells us why people do it and what they're getting out of it. It's fascinating. First Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 1, sorry, verse 3. 
As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause what? Disputes, right? Rather than godly edification, which is in faith. So if people are disputing, what are they not doing? Having godly edification, which is in faith, right? Now, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart. And then notice he says, from a pure conscience. I'm going to pack that here in just a second. And from sincere faith. So Paul here counsels against chasing the rabbits of side issues. Stick to the main doctrines you were given, he tells Timothy. Those other issues lead to disputes instead of godly edification. Notice sincerity is in the faith of those who avoid these types of disputes. Okay, he continues in verse six. From which some, that sincere faith, they've strayed from it, having turned aside to idle talk. And then notice, what do these people want to do? They desire to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. So people stray from a sincere faith and godly edification, and they fall into side issues and less important things. And they long to be teachers of the law, but they really don't know what they're talking about, Paul says. What I'm coming to find is that when people fall into these argumentative topics, it's not solely a theological issue. They portray it as much kicking up dust and tearing their flesh, right? And wearing sackcloth and ashes and freaking out about people's seemingly sinful habits and so forth. But many times this isn't just a spirituality issue. There's something they're getting out of it. It's serving a purpose for them. Now, am I saying there's no point in having rebuke or uh, correction within the church and that things are all just wonderful and let's not talk about it? I'm not saying that. But the spirit in which you have those conversations is incredibly important. Are you with me? and are hyper-focused on these things at the expense of what's actually true is also problematic. So there's something people are getting out of it. That's why they keep falling prey to it. It's serving a purpose for them. And this is why many times they remain of that personality, even if they lose loyalty to one of their pet ideas. They swing to the next one as a move of desperation to find something to fill a deep unmet need. This is why you probably know somebody who is into 2520, right? Then they became a lunar Sabbath observer, then a flat earther, anti-Trinitarian, a feast keeper. They're obsessed with politics, except with end-time events and connecting dots that nobody else is seeing. You ever seen those people, right? Like, no one knows this. Yeah, there's a reason no one knows this. It's not even the Bible, right? Anyway, weird interpretations of prophecy, obsession over reform topics, not that they don't have a place, but obsession over them. They silently leave one idea framework and move to another, or they have to add another one on because the first one isn't filling them anymore. How many people have seen someone go through this cycle? How many people have seen this spiral in somebody else's life? It's super common, right? So they're big, oh, this is the thing. And then it kind of wears off and they need, they need a hit. They need something to get them jacked up again. So they find some other crazy teaching or some other side tangent to chase and do. They either layer them or they switch them, but they never have this party that says, hey, by the way, my views have changed on this topic and I'm gonna talk about this now. They just go silent, right? Then they kick up another one and go this direction. Paul tells us the reason for this back in verse five. He says that they don't seem to have a good conscience. Many times we feel self-hatred and feel like we aren't good enough, especially in conservative environments. And so we feel like we aren't good enough for God's standards, let alone the other standards that the church can uphold, whether they come from God or man's control issues. 
And the only way to be able to survive that level of shame that comes from a lack of being enough is to run to one of our other favorite drugs of choice. Well, at least I'm better than her. At least I'm better than him and the, uh, the us versus them mentality and the I know things that you don't know high horse. A true understanding of righteousness by faith as God intends, a faith that works by love as part of the divine counselor's recommended remedy, frees us from that shame and those feelings of not being good enough. So if we don't get the gospel and aren't receiving the benefits of it, we're going to run to these carnal solutions. Power over dynamics and the I'm better than you and let me prove it with my arguments way of thinking. By the way, it's not just offshoot ideas, right? Like this comes even in, in mainline church issues, right? Where we're railing on the other guys. There are websites run by Seventh-day Adventist Christians that only exist to out the other guys. You know what I'm talking about. There are YouTube channels calling the church Babylon or going just short of calling the church Babylon because Ellen White says to call the church Babylon is the work of Satan. So we don't want to do that but we also really don't like what the church is doing. So we'll make YouTube videos telling people what the church is doing that they shouldn't do. Are you with me? And these outlets are sinful and unreasonable, and I apologize to no one. This is carnality to create resources to out the other guys who are Adventists. We're meant to be on the same team. We may see things differently, but if we can't talk together like Christians while addressing our issues, our Christianity deserves re-examination and we need counseling. Are you with me? Sounds like you're uncomfortable. <laughs> it's interesting that after warning us of combative argumentative types, he says that they want to be teachers of the law, which now makes sense, doesn't it? It's a place for them to be in control or have authority under the auspices of doing God's service. It gives them spiritual reasons to fulfill their fleshly tendency to control and criticism. Are you understanding? How many people have ever heard the prayer requests that are really just gossip? You ever heard of those? Oh, we should pray for so-and-so because they're, but you're really just outing them, but that's going to make me feel guilty. I won't have a good conscience, so I'll just mask it with fig leaves of piety, right? These are real issues, guys. It's also ironic that they want to teach others, but Paul acknowledges that these people actually really don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> he continues in verse 8 and says, but we know that the law is good, and then what does he say? If one uses it lawfully, what's he implying? That someone can be using the law in an unlawful manner. It's intended to convict sinners, he'll say in verses 9 through 11. That's the purpose of the law instead of a place of conflict. And he alludes to this in Romans 2. Let's go there real quick, and then we'll come back to 1 Timothy. Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 29. He'll address some of the issues of his day where this manifests itself. Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having a form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? 
You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through the breaking of the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Is he speaking to pagans or religious people at this stage? Yeah, and he says the name of God is blasphemed among the unbelieving world and it's your fault, religious person. Because of your motives and how you're sharing and manipulating and using power over dynamics with your theological perspectives. Are you understanding? I'm not saying don't preach. I'm not saying don't be strong in truth and so forth. I'm not against any of that. Anyone who knows me know I'm all about that. But the point is, there are abuses happening in our midst because of these issues. Are you with me, guys? Somebody's got to pull the fire alarm and say, hey, we need to re-examine how we're doing things. Because if people are being harmed, but we won't own our losses, we look like the Egyptians. There's no losses on our scorecard. We've, we've been killing it since 1844. But is that actually true? Are there mistakes we have been making in the way in which we've approached doing ministry or dealing with issues that has led to people being harmed in the process? That doesn't mean that the, the corpus of truth that we embrace isn't still true. Of course it is. The point is, are we maligning or distorting that truth by our carnality and our approach to it? Does that make sense? Paul continues, verse 25, for, the circum for circumcision in is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision is basically uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirement of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one where? Inwardly. inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So people were using the law as their claim to superiority while not keeping the law themselves. And that contradiction leads people to either leave the church or never come in in the first place. There are consequences to this way of thinking and doing life. Big ones. Circumcision and law keeping were the badges of honor for them, but we can have our own versions of that today, right? Lifestyle issues, church politic, hot potatoes, and doctrinal issues, and so forth. It's how we handle these issues. Let's go back to 1 Timothy, verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, and look at how that word is defined, scurrilous or spreading claims to damage someone's reputation. What would you call that? Gossip or slander, right? So he says that he was a blasphemer, but this is actually the definition of that word spilling people's business and stuff. I was a persecutor coming at people who didn't believe like me. Then he says he was an insolent man. And the word actually is defined here as a violently arrogant man. Isn't that fascinating? Paul literally is being so vulnerable here and acknowledging, I used to look like this, Timothy. I used to be one of these beasts at Ephesus, as he'll allude to in a different place in the New Testament. I used to be one of these people. I was a violently arrogant man, spreading claims about people. I was persecuting, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. I didn't know who I really was, and I didn't know Jesus. It's important to see here that Saul of Tarsus, before Jesus got a hold of him, looks like some Avenus present truthers, some Avenus websites, offshoots, or Avenus YouTube channels. 
And it's amazing because Jesus saw past the smoke screens of aggressive religiosity and saw what Saul really needed in his life. And you know what it was? It was Jesus. A face-to-face encounter with Jesus. Saul wasn't who he thought he was either. He had a Laodicean problem as well. He was ignorant of his true condition. And because he was ignorant of his true condition, he found himself judging and persecuting other people who didn't believe like him. He needed a counselor, and he got one in Acts chapter 9. Face-to-face encounter with Jesus Christ himself. He didn't realize that his lack of faith in Jesus led him to become this type of person, even though he was very religious. Are you following with me, guys? He continues in verse 14, And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. And this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then what does he say? Of whom I'm the chief. He shows how God reached him and how this is a story for our benefit. He's saying in verse 15 something that's very much in contrast to the foolishness of the ungodly argumentative focus. What's worthy of our acceptance is coming face to face with our own sinfulness and our need of Jesus. This is a solution to this type of bad religion. I'm not better than anybody else and I need Jesus just as much as they do. You know what the biggest problem is in the Seventh-day Adventist church? Get your notebooks out. Get ready. You know what it is? It's not Ted Wilson. It's not Alex Bryant. It's not my conference president. It's not my pastor. You know what the biggest problem is in the Seventh-day Adventist church? It's me. Write that down. D. Casper is the biggest problem in the Seventh-day Adventist church. It's me. My agenda, my violently arrogant personality, my gossip, I'm the biggest problem. And until all 20 million Seventh-day Adventists come to that realization that each and every one of us are the biggest problem in the Seventh-day Adventist church and not the other guy, we are not going to experience revival. Why are you praying for revival and not asking for a counselor? People can't receive revival when they don't see their need of revival. That's why we're praying, Lord, revive the church, revive them, revive the other. Did you hear what they did at that academy over there? Did you hear what they did and, and made that person elder at that church over there? No, the biggest problem is you. You're the problem. I'm the problem. And we need counseling. Are you with me, guys? And if we heed that counsel, then we can have revival. Verse 16 of 1 Timothy 1. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Here's the good news. There's healing from bad religion. Reconciliation, healing, and transformation can happen. Now, to the king eternal, immortal, visible, to God who alone is wise, be honor, glory forever and ever. For this reason, because I came to recognize my brokenness and my nothingness apart from Jesus, what did he obtain? Mercy. You don't have to have a troubled conscience anymore. You can actually receive mercy when you acknowledge who you really are. And the Andrew Study Bible comments on this in verses 12 to 17. 1 Timothy I keep looking up and then I see other faces that I know and I want to say hi to them. This is dangerous. <laughs> oh, wait, that's so-and-so. I haven't seen them in so long. First Timothy chapter 1 and uh, 
says here that Paul models offering thanksgiving to God, affirming the truth of Romans 5, 8, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In his own story. Earlier, Paul had referred to himself as the least of the apostles, 1 Corinthians 15, 9, and later the least of all the saints, Ephesians 3, 8. Now near the end of his life, he perceives himself to be the chief of sinners, a prototype of God's grace. Paul offers this truth, no matter how awful our past, God forgives us and has a plan for our future. Can you say amen? The wonder of God's grace brings an outburst of praise, just as tracing God's mercy in our own lives should do that for us. On, all's, on Paul's earlier role as a persecutor, anyway, those are common notes, okay? So the idea is that the more we grow in Christ, the less confidence we should have in ourselves, and the less we should elevate ourselves above others. But the unfortunate truth of the matter is, many times the more we, low, the more we grow and the more our talents grow, we can lose sight of our need of Jesus. And this is incredibly dangerous. Not only for us, but also for the church, because we can become a harmful agent in the church in that state. Saul of Tarsus became that harmful element, and it took a face-to-face -face encounter with Jesus to lay his glory in the dust. Um, man, I'm not going to have time to do this, but Philippians chapter 3, Paul kind of walks through his own story of all the things he did, and he basically is making the point that if there's anybody who could have been saved by what they did, it was me. And he got to a point where he said, I count all of that as rubbish, animal excrement, so that I can just be counted as being in Christ and that I can know him and be found in him. Paul came to that realization. It wasn't about how awesome I was, how better I was than other people. I just want to be found in Jesus. I just want to know him and I want him to know me. And he states his own true condition in contrast to Jesus' character in Philippians 2, who became nothing, 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 nothing. Who being in very nature God, considered equality with God something that wasn't to be grasped. He laid it aside and came a man and became obedient even to the point of death, even the most shameful death on the cross. What was gained to me, I count as loss. If anyone could have been saved by what they did, it was me. And his growth curve moved in the right direction when we saw his need of Jesus. Paul's level of vulnerability and willingness to acknowledge where he was wrong is commendable, isn't it? He is so vulnerable with Timothy. These are the mistakes I made as an Adventist, he says, of sorts, right? I grew up in the church. My great-great-great-great-grandfather mowed Ella White's lawn, right? This thing is in my DNA. You cut me open, haystacks will come out. Like, this is, this is Paul. And he says, I count all of that as nothing. It doesn't matter if I don't truly know Jesus. Are you with me, guys? So he's incredibly vulnerable here. And in seeing how different he was from Jesus in character and owning that, even though he was very religious. In verse 18 now in 1 Timothy 1. So this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith, and then what does he say? A good conscience. If you know Jesus and are known by him, you can have a good conscience. If you're being tormented by not being good enough and so forth, what do you do? The only way to cope and get through that shame is to be better than somebody else, right? Which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So he encourages Timothy to have a good conscience, doubling back to his point earlier. And those who are loaded down by their conscience eventually suffer shipwreck in their faith. How many people have seen that? Some zealot in your church. This guy's got it together. Then all of a sudden the wife leaves. 
because he was a tyrant in the home, and then eventually he's no longer in the church. You seen something like that? Could be different people, could be different genders involved, but you've seen this, haven't you? It doesn't really do anything for you. Being better than the other guy doesn't meet the deepest heart needs. It's a drug to get you by for a little bit, but it doesn't really meet your needs. And so you either leave or you have to experience conversion. You can't stay, right? It doesn't last. And it leads to blaspheming, which was defined earlier as spreading claims to damage somebody's reputation. In chapter six, he says, if anyone teaches otherwise, verse three, 1 Timothy 6, verse 3, and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords to godliness or piety, he is proud, knowing nothing. But he's obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, and evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. They use their religiosity to get power over dynamics or people are so fascinated that brother so-and-so just knows his Bible so well. You bet I do. They think that their godliness is a means of gain. And what does Paul tell Timothy about people like that? Stay away from them. From such people, withdraw yourself. So he continues his instruction to apply that true doctrine should lead to piety and godliness in our behavior and dealings with others. Otherwise, it's going to produce disputes, arguments over words, and eventually envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, wrangling, and eventually a distorted idea of what religion is about. A means of gain or a platform by which you can gain power over others. Paul says, stay away from people like this. He told that to a pastor, as a pastor. And he continues, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing we, uh, with these, we shall be content. Verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. We see this even in the prosperity gospel side of things, right? People want them to be lauded and praised and so forth and give us your money. We'll build bigger churches and have more TV stations and satellite campuses. There's danger there too, right? Not just by heavy-handed present truthers or religionists, but also those who are seeking financial gain through their ministry. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 14 Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit. Then it says, to the ruin of the hearers. Contentious preaching and religion causes harm to the hearers. We'll unpack that in a moment. Verse 15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. Which implies that some people maybe do need to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. So to the ruin of the hearers can imply that it would draw them into that same type of thinking or crush their own happiness or self-esteem. Our human nature loves gossip and self-assertiveness and the power over dynamic. So he says a worker who does not need to be ashamed, who doesn't peddle in these things. So in turn, we should be ashamed of ourselves if this is how we're doing religion and Adventism. And we need a counselor. God calls us to rightly divide the word of truth and not weaponize it or take verses out of context to argue with other people or make non-issues the issue, etc. And if we do this, we won't be ashamed. 
Verse 16, he says, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. Notice, they don't actually help. They don't lead to holiness. They lead to ungodliness, he says. And their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection's already passed and they overthrow the faith of some. It's fascinating that the things that we run to and prognosticate about lead to more ungodliness and not less. And it's even worse than that. Paul calls it cancerous in nature. He says in verse 23, avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, even the people you don't agree with. Able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Argumentative and combative people are captive to Satan and are being used to do his will. And they need to experience repentance. They need a counselor, which the true counsel defines as thinking differently, a literal changing of the mind. Lastly, he tells Titus in Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. They profess to know God, but in their works they're denying him. It's back to Romans 2 again. And are disqualified for every good work. This reminds me of a quote from Ellen White. We read this last night. She says, nothing frightens me more than to see the spirit of variance manifested by politicians. Is that what she says? No, she says who? Who are our brethren? Yeah, Seventh-day Adventists. This spirit of contention amongst fellow Seventh-day Adventists, she says, nothing frightens me more than that. And she saw a lot of stuff. She says, we are on dangerous ground when we cannot meet together like Christians and courteously examine controverted points. If you can't look and act like Jesus when talking about Jesus, you need Jesus, is what she's saying here. You need counseling. She continues, I feel like fleeing the place lest I receive the mold of those who cannot candidly investigate the doctrines of the Bible. You ever wanted to walk out of a church board meeting? You ever wanted to walk out of a church service or a Sabbath school or a business meeting because of this type of behavior? She felt the same way. She said, those who cannot impartially examine evidences of a position that differs from theirs are not fit to teach in any department of God's cause. Shouldn't be pastors, Sabbath school teachers, elders, deacons, deaconesses, school teachers, administrators. You should not be leading anybody if this is the spirit that's inside of you. That's what she says. Why? because it hurts people. It's damaging to the hearers, right? As we saw earlier. One of the other things we can do in John chapter four, when Jesus is interacting with the woman at the well, by the way, Ellen White says that that statement with the woman at the well is the most important discourse in all of inspiration. Did you know that? She says it's the most important discourse in all of inspiration is John four. So as Jesus goes back and forth with this woman and he gets to the root issues and says, go call your husband, her response and having someone put their finger on the real issues is a response that many of us can have. She ran to religious controversy to avoid dealing with her brokenness. She says, well, you Jews say we need to go to Jerusalem and worship there, but we've got this mountain. Our fathers gave us this well. She's avoiding dealing with the root issues. Jesus wins her. He wins her over and labors for her and he doesn't take the bait. Can you say amen to that, by the way? Don't take the bait. 
But the point is, we can use religious controversy to avoid dealing with our own heart issues and brokenness. Is that true? Definitely. Back to Titus. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceful, gentle, showing all humility to all men, because we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hating, uh, being hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, something happened. Okay? I almost titled the sermon, Stop Acting a Fool, um, but I thought better of it. And, but he's, that's what he's saying, right? Like we do foolish things. We are acting foolishly when we do this. That's Paul's language. But he's used this phrase multiple times in, regard to, in regards to this kind of behavior, and he never endorses it for the Christian. He continually calls it foolishness. But when the kindness of God appeared, not by our works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's repentance. That's revival. Whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs to the hope of eternal life. And this is the faithful uh, saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men, but avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless, he says. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning. And then what's the word he uses here? Being self-condemned. Again, he's shining a light on where this behavior comes from. They're sinning and many times self-condemned which is another fascinating thing, right? Some of these heavy-handed, fire-breathing dragon preachers, you find out later they have like serious secret sin issues later, right? So one of the ways they deal with that internal conflict and disharmony is to, you know, flamethrow somebody other than themselves. That internal self-condemnation drives them to be argumentative and divisive as a means of trying to cope or compensate for their insecurities. And this is why you meet lots of people in offshoots and combative theological environments that also seem a bit off socially. They're drawn to a place where they feel accepted and better than others as a way to cope with the feelings of their own insecurities. People who were controlled or harassed by shame also enjoy places like this because it again levels the playing field. Now I can take control or be better than someone else. It's that natural drug of choice. I'm filled with shame from not keeping God's principles and man's principles on top of that. And the only way to cope with that is to be better than others. And this is part of the allure of conspiracy theories as well, right? It's the Genesis 3 issue. It's access to hidden knowledge. I know something you don't know, and it brings a sense of self-worth that I have something that you don't. Because internally, there's feelings of insecurity and so forth. And please don't come talk to me about, don't you know the government created that word conspiracy theories? I'm using it because that's a word people know. Okay, don't, don't waste my time. Okay, uh, but it's also a place where we process our anxiety. I read a fascinating article on this this morning. Uh, conspiracy theories many times are a place where we process our anxiety and distrust and we grapple with life's disappointments. So we look for a place to assign blame, and we also want to demonize someone other than ourselves so that we can get a boost in our own self-esteem. Um, if you'd like to have this article, it's on the website instrumentofmercy.com. Um, instrumentofmercy.com. It's written by a guy named uh, Joe Forrest. He wrote it on 
May 7th, uh, 2020. Yeah, I just used my fingers. And um, it's called Why Your Christian Friends and Family Members Are So Easily Fooled by Conspiracy Theories. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking and shameful how people of biblical faith can fall into some of this stuff, right? And it's just, it is what it is. And I'm not telling you what side of the aisle I'm on or what things I think are and aren't. Some people are reading me up and down and saying, is he a fed, right? Or is he somebody who's just drinking the Kool-Aid? Please, 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 just read your Bible and leave me alone, okay? Like, it's not where I'm going. Uh, I have many views and none of them are your business. Okay. <laughs> now, I have some case studies for you, but we'll deal with those in the afternoon session because I believe I have eclipsed uh, my timeline here. So what we'll do is we'll pick these up this afternoon and deal with some case studies, some other um, worldview issues or thought patterns, and then we'll close. But has this made sense this morning? Yes or no? Yeah, there's, there's reasons why we run to this stuff. There's reasons why it's attractive. It's not that people want to hurt people, right? Like people, there are very few, I believe, in the Seventh-day Adventist church who are baptized and their first instinct is, who can I pray upon? I don't think that's what happens. I think the problem is Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted. That's what he came here for. Some of us think Jesus just came to give us better theology than the other guys. And we never experience the healing of our broken hearts. So what do we do? We live out the quest that Jesus didn't live out. We're like Peter. We're hacking people's ears off in the name of Jesus, thinking we're doing Jesus a favor with our violent arguments. What did he tell Peter? Put your sword in its place. Jesus doesn't need your violent arguments. He doesn't need them. He's quite capable of defending himself. He doesn't need that. So when we don't deal with our own brokenness, we can take that mentality and bring it into our spirituality. This is called syncretism, where you're taking one worldview and meshing it with another worldview and trying to practice both at the same time. So when you're an insecure, broken person, while also trying to be a Christian, you know what happens? Your flesh is showing. It comes out when we don't deal with our stuff. Does that make sense? But you know what the good news is? Jesus loves us and he's knocking on that door, offering us counseling, offering us a solution in himself. And so if you feel they're like, man, like this is, this is, I, I feel attacked this morning. Um, these are things I want to be better aware of right? As I started studying more, because Sarah and I have talked about the idea of the harm of bad religion and church hurt, but the question still remained for me was, yeah, but why? Why do people find themselves here? And I think these are some of those issues. I believe the Bible comes with the assumption that one of the interpretive tools you will use is being aware of the human condition. So when you see humans doing things in the scriptures, you can understand why, because they're humans doing what humans do. Does that make sense? And Paul is very vulnerable and I think clear and systematic in dealing with the root heart issues of this bad religion in the churches of his day. And I think there's lessons for us there. So the answer for all of this is ensuring our identity is rooted in Christ and a true knowledge of him and building intimacy in him. And the reason why it's so alluring to run to all this other stuff is because something is lacking in that relationship and our religious experience isn't meeting our deepest needs. So we need something else and the gospel. The gospel's not doing it for me, so I got to get into end time events. Now I'm excited, because I know Jesus died for me, big deal. Everybody knows that. But give me the real meat. You ever seen people like this? 
I'm always scared to death when people say and imply and allude to things like this. They never talk about the gospel. They never talk about the love of God. It's always about what's coming down the pike and all that. My concern is something's probably lacking. There's probably a lack of symmetry here in the personal experience. And so it isn't meeting our deepest needs. Hence, our running to faulty replacements for what only Jesus can give. So if you feel like you don't have that experience, here's the good news. He's more than willing to give it to you. Just come to him. Be honest with your true condition and heed the advice given by the true counselor. He's only showing you these things so that you'll let him in and let him heal you. He's bearing witness to the true state of your condition and he's just asking you to open the door of your heart and to let him in. Peter had to go through this. Was Peter someone who loved Jesus and wanted to serve him? Yes or no? And did Peter struggle and make mistakes, hack people's ears off and betray Jesus? Yes. We're not saying that Peter wasn't converted. What I am saying is Peter needed a deeper conversion experience. Saul of Tarsus, someone who loved God and wanted to honor him, but something was lacking in his experience. Maybe that's some of us here. We do love God. We want to honor God, but we're also recognizing people who talk about intimacy with Jesus and, and him being the love of their life and so forth, that's just kind of weird and creepy to me. I don't know what to do with that. He's someone to obey. I can deal with an authoritarian and a power structure with Jesus, but I can't relate to intimacy with Jesus. If that's something you struggle with, you can ask him to address that. Jesus, search my heart. Show me why it is that I struggle to understand what intimacy with you looks like and why it's not desirable to me. You can ask him. He's that practical, okay? Jesus showed them their weakness and he provided for it in himself. And so that's my appeal to us this morning is to have that honest and earnest conversation with him. If you're looking for more resources, my wife is in the process of creating many more, um, of creating audio resources and written resources. We've done some things together and are going to do some things together of helping people sort through this. How do we get out of this mess of bad religion and being hurt? How do we have a healthier view of God and a healthier view of ourselves? And so a resource, if you just follow on Instagram, it's Hey, You're Brave, Y-O-U-R-E, Brave. Um, she's creating resources to help with this. We see a big need in our church for better understanding the message of righteousness by faith and mental health and resourcing our people. And so if that's of interest to you, and she's even doing mental health coaching, uh, helping people work through that. And uh, yeah, this is another place where we can have some next steps. And so anyway, let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for this chance to reflect upon uh, the root issues behind why people fall prey to bad religion. And Lord, I pray that if that's me, if that's some of us, that you would do that job of being the true witness and our counselor. Lord, we confess this morning that we need counseling. We need you to speak truth into the inward parts, and we're asking that you would show us the solution personally tailored to where we are, what we've been through, and what we need. Pray that you would cover our sins with the blood of Jesus, that you would bring us to true biblical repentance, a true changing of the mind, and that you would give us warmth of feeling for the truth that you're trying to reveal to us. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org dot org.